This is Parsha Panorama in this week's Parsha, is Parsha's B'Shalach. And today, for Parsha's B'Shalach, we have a lot to discuss in a very packed Parsha. And as always, we want to get to everything, but also remember where we are on the larger map of the Torah. What are we trying to accomplish? What is the goal of Parsha's B'Shalach? And again, in this Parsha, we are picking up from somewhere that we left off in Parsha's Bo. And although people typically think that Parsha's B'Shalach is the Parsha of the Exodus, which it is, but the Exodus d- didn't actually begin in Parsha's B'Shalach, but it actually began in Parsha's Bo. Towards the end of Parsha's Bo, the Chumash actually began telling us about the Exodus. The Bnei Israel were formally dismissed from Egypt, and on their way out, the Chumash tells us you know, the, the number of years, the 430 years in the making, um, and they walk out. Then the Chumash um, digresses, and it's not entirely a digression, it's really you know, all the mitzvahs that the Chumash talks about are part of the story, and at that point the Chumash talks about the commandment, a lot of extra laws, um, extra meaning to the ones that were earlier in Parshas Bo. There are extra laws pertaining to the Karban Pesach, the laws of Tefillin, and the um, Kiddush um, Bechor, the holiness of the firstborns. So all of that is at the end of Bo. And then the Chumash returns to the narrative here when it's telling us about how Hashem took the Bnei Israel in a roundabout way when leaving Mitzrayim, when they were on their way. Um, it says that they could have gone straight in, but Hashem said, I'm not going to take them in, Kikarovhu because it's close. We'll have to talk about what exactly that means. Kikarovu might mean because it's close or even though it's close. So we'll have to talk a little bit about that. And then all the major action of the Exodus takes place in Bishalach. The main part of which we might argue is the the Kriyas uh, Yamsuf, Splitting of the Sea, Shiraz Hayam, where Klai Yisrael sings to Hashem in response. But even though that's the most exciting and most famous part of the Parsha, it may not be the only focal point. And in fact, it's only the beginning of a very long, um, packed Parsha with many different twists and turns that the Bnei Yisrael take. And what we need to understand, I think one thing to think about at least, is why the Exodus began in Bo. It's interrupted by laws, and then it resumes in Bishalach. We could have put the entire Exodus into one Parsha. It sounds like there are two different phases here, right? Just like we said, you know, not all the Makos were in Parshas of Va'era. They were split between Va'era and Bo, and we had suggested that Bo is the beginning of a, new, of a new phase. So apparently, there is a phase one part of the Exodus, which took place last week, and this is going to be phase two, and we have to see exactly where we are going with this. What is this new phase? So that's something to think about as we go through the different topics in the Parsha. Now, there's another reason why this week's Parsha is really, really fascinating, and that is based on a point of the Chakal Yitzchak, one of the Spinka Rebbes. So we've quoted him in the past, I think. Um, Rav Mordechai Satorsky on Torah anytime often quotes him. And the Chakal Yitzchak basically explains, um, anyway, we, we mentioned this on, on Hanukkah, I believe, but the idea that wherever you have a Kriyas HaTorah that is normally said on a... Um, oh, I, th- I think we might have had in Shovim, um, the Real Talk Torah on Shovim. Either way, anytime you have a Kriyas HaTorah that is featured on a Yom Tov laning, 
So whenever it is that Kriyas HaTorah um, for Parsha HaShavua, the Parsha HaShavua that week, that Shabbos, has elements of the holiday on which the same laning is read. So if that's true, this week, this Shabbos, Shabbos Shira, Shabbos Parshas B'Shalach, um, the, the, the Shabbos of, of the Parshas Haman, so there's a lot, of, um, you know, a lot of energy in this Parsha, but this Parsha happens to have Kriya Satora that takes place on the Shvi'i Shal Pesach, the last day of Pesach, and we have a Kriya Satora from Purim. Right? Shiras Hayam is read on Pesach, but the story of the war against Amalek, which takes place at the end of the Parsha, is actually the Kriya Satora from Purim which would mean that this Shabbos has elements of the Shvi'i Shal Pesach, and it also has elements of Purim. So that's a, that, that's a very unique Shabbos. So something to think about. Maybe later in this particular uh, Parsha Panorama episode, we will actually return to Pesach and Purim, because I think there is an element of Pesach and Purim that actually emerges from this really incredible Parsha. So we're going to go to the specific components of the Parsha, but before we do, I want to acknowledge our sponsors, Yon and Connie Laster and Yaakov and Yafa Landau. Thank you so much for sponsoring. And if anyone else wants to sponsor that like they did, so just reach out to me at thedatabase at gmail.com. That's the data, then base, B-E-I-S, at gmail.com. Okay, so let's go into the specifics of the Parsha. I have six sections. The first section is the Exodus, the part in which Hashem redirects the Bnei Israel. Obviously, he misleads Paro because Paro gets the impression that the Bnei Israel are wandering and they're lost. And so then Paro's heart gets hardened and Paro ultimately resumes his, his original feelings of, I want to keep them as my slaves. And so he chases after them. Pretty incredible. Um, you know, you wonder why, you know, we, we, we don't think of the Parsha of Parsha's B'Shalach um, we, we can't imagine it without Kriyas Yamsuf, but just to think that that part didn't have to happen. You know, Paro could have just, you know, let, let the Bnei Israel leave, and Bnei Israel could have gone, and there would be no Kriyas Yamsuf, and that's okay, because, you know, Bnei Israel saw a lot of miracles in Egypt anyway, and the chase didn't have to happen. Apparently, Hashem wanted that part to happen, because Hashem hardened Paro's heart. So that's interesting. Um, maybe a question to think about, we'll have to return to this question, is what was lacking in the Ten Makos and all the wonders that the Bnei Israel had witnessed in Egypt that they needed to see Kriyas Yamsuf? You know, again, we can, we, it's hard for us to envision the Parsha without Kriyas Yamsuf, but it could have been that way, and the narrative would have still been very smooth and seamless. So why did we need Kriyas Yamsuf after everything we had seen already? Why did Paro have to chase us um, and, and have a culmination of Kriyas Yamsuf. So something to think about. But anyway, number one is the redirecting of the Bnei Israel, misleading Paro. Two is Kriyas Yamsuf and Shira Sayam, the sea splitting, us singing to Hashem about it. Three is the scene at Mara, where the water is very bitter, and Moshe Rabbeinu performs a miracle to sweeten the waters for us. Um, that's the, 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 one, of the, one of the earlier complaints of the Bnei Israel is that they needed water, so Moshe Rabbeinu came there to serve them water. Fine. Four... Um, we have a couple of scenes. We have one scene in Elim, and then we have a scene in Midbar Sin. Elim, not much 
um, happens, at least not much that the Chumash, um, you know, the Chumash doesn't give us such a big story, but there are 12 springs and 70 date palms, and where everything is pretty serene, but then from there they go to Midbar Sin, and in Midbar Sin they complain again that they don't, or at least they complain for the first time that they don't have food, and that's the intro to Parshas Haman. So in section 4 we have Parshas Haman, which is the Parsha which Hashem gives us the special food from Shemaim, the spiritual sustenance, which also had physical sustenance, um, I guess, infused with it, and that was our food. After that, we get to section 5, Rafidim and Masa Umariva, where we have the first time Moshe Rabbeinu um, hits a rock to retrieve water. And this comes from the second complaint from the Bnei Israel that they needed water. Okay? Then, finally, number 6, we have the Melchamas Amalek, the war against the Amalek. We spoke about that in Muslim minutes. Yehoshua is designated, he's selected to be the commander, and um, Yehoshua ultimately um, does war with Amalek. And then that's the end of the Parsha. So again, we have the, the Exodus, the redirecting of the Bnei Israel, and misleading Paro. We have two, Kriyas Yamsuf. Three, we have Mara, the tree and the water. Four, we have Elam and Midbar Sin with Parshas Hamon. Five, we have Rafidim and Masa Mariva. That's the story of Moshe Rabbeinu hitting the rock um, according to Hashem's will and getting water for the Bnei Israel. And then six, we have Milcham Asamalik. Okay, so let's um, return to some of our questions and we'll ask some more very important questions. So... We said that the literal exodus began in Bo, and then it was interrupted by more um, carbon Pesach laws, and then the exodus resumes in Bishalaks. The question is why the why we have to interrupt the narrative in the middle. Okay, that's a basic question. It's a basic um, you know beginning of a parsha kind of a question, but there are some really major questions that not only can you not read this parsha without asking them. But if you really think about it, you can't read the entire rest of the Torah without asking this question. I'm about to challenge the entire rest of the Torah. Okay, you ready? Here's my question. The question is, why did Hashem have to avoid the quick route into Eretz Yisrael? The Chumash is somewhat vague, but also somewhat um, elaborate at the same time about why... Hashem had to avoid the quick route in. Now, bear in mind, the Chumash did not have to give us a reason. The Chumash could have just said, this is the route that Hashem took them on, and we could have tried to infer why Hashem took them on the route that He took them. The Chumash did not leave us completely to, to, to wonder. The Chumash divulged a reason. It disclosed a a reservation that Hashem had. I, mean, I can't bring them in the quick route. Why? It says, Kikarovu and Peninachem, lest they reg- re- regret when they see um, a war, right? And this is the Plishtim, that they went around and avoided the Plishtim, but if they would see the Plishtim and then they would be um, confronted by war, they would be afraid and they would turn back and they would go back to Egypt. That's what Hashem says. So some say Kikarovu means even though it was close, meaning it would have been the fast route in. I think the Ramban has this read. It was the fast route in, and it would have been close, but Hashem avoided it because of this fear. Rashi says the, um, the opposite. No, Kikarovu is not even though it is close, but because it is close. Dafka, because it is close, because if they, get ups- if, they get, if they get afraid when they see war, and they're going to say, oh no, we should have never leave, uh, left, so then it's going to be a very easy route back into Mitzrayim, and we wouldn't want to quickly undo all of that. 
so that's, that's how they, you know, how the Mepharshim read those words. But here's my problem. You ready? So, so, so what if the Plishtim are there, blocking? Like, what, why couldn't, you know, like, is, is that the end of it? Like, like, why couldn't Hashem distract the Plishtim somehow? Or miraculously fight them himself? You know, he was about to do that to Egypt anyway. You want to tell me, oh, Hashem doesn't want to, you know, um, engage in um, supernatural intervention. He's about to do that to Egypt with Kriyas Yamsuf. So if Hashem is going to be doing miracles anyway, why don't you do one nice massive miracle, fight the Plishtim, fight any wars, or avoid war entirely. Let's say you want it to be clean. Okay, so find some clean way to distract everyone, get the Bnei Israel into Eretz Israel. Don't let them see war and everything will be fine. It's, it's almost like Hashem has his hands tied. Oh, I, 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 better, I better take them on this detour. Right? And... Here's the question now. We've already asked the question. I'm going to strengthen the question. Was the longer route actually a more promising and better route? Because if you think about it, a lot of terrible things are actually about to happen on that longer route. Hashem is concerned, oh, the Bnei Shal are going to regret. They're going to want to go back to Mitzrayim. We know that this is a real-life concern, this is a very reasonable concern because, in fact, the Bnei Israel do express this. Um, they express these feelings many times throughout their forty years in the Midbar. They express it in Parshas B'Shalach. They're going to want to turn back many times in Bahaloscha. They're going to want to turn back in Chukas. They're going to want to turn back in Shalach and Korach. All these parshios are filled with complaints and about this 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 impassioned argument that we should turn back and go back to Mitzrayim. So this is a reasonable concern, but is everything better now that Hashem took them on the longer route? You might say, oh look, Hashem trapped them by taking them across the sea, made it much more difficult to turn back. So this way, you know, they're not, you know, even though they, they do regret and they want to go back, you know, he, for, he didn't take them straight into Israel, but he took them on this longer route. But again, was this better? Not only did the Bnei Israel complain multiple times that they want to go back, and it, you know it seems like Hashem is just you know for, forcing you know for, forcing their hands, forcing their bodies, their entire bodies to travel forth. But the Chet Egel is going to happen. The Chet Hamaraglim is going to happen. Korach's rebellion is going to happen. Moshe Rabbeinu is going to lose his rights to enter Eretz Yisrael. And yes, any one of these scenes could have been avoided by people making the right decisions. And we're not we're not. And I'm not suggesting that this is all Hashem's fault for having taken them on the longer route. But this longer route, in fact, opened them to what would end up turning into 40 years of wandering. And how many casualties over those 40 years, you know, whatever the number is, it was an entire generation worth of people, minus two, Yoshua and Kalev. But even Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't going to make it. And could you imagine, you know, you might say, you know, what, what difference does it make? I'll tell you, it makes a big difference. This generation, if, they, if Hashem took them on the faster route, they could have gone into Eretz Yisrael. This generation would not have that opportunity. Hashem took them on this longer route. And on this longer route in which a lot of terrible things happen, and there will be a lot of casualties. In fact, the entire generation will be, will be among those casualties. Again, minus two. And all for what? Because Hashem was afraid that they would have turned back. I see. 
So I think we're missing something. Because Hashem could have, you know, forced them into Eretz Yisrael, and he could have blockaded them in the land of Israel. They wouldn't be able to turn back. You know, Hashem, was only, Hashem only knows how to blockade by using the Yamsuf. He couldn't come up with some other plan. I thought we have a principle that Shluchim Harbei Lamokam. Hashem is many messengers. Hashem, Hashem is not at a loss of options. And if Hashem has everything at his disposal, why would Hashem box himself into what seems like the most, yes, roundabout and counterintuitive and counterproductive route, which, again, is going to come with a lot of pain and suffering and misery and a lot of unfortunate tragedy and failure. All because, oh, I couldn't take them in the fast route. So the question is, the road not taken, shouldn't we have taken it? And again, this is a question on the entire rest of the Torah. Okay, so I want you to sit on that question while I throw out some other questions. These questions are not going to be as big as this question that we just addressed, but they're all going to contribute to the answer. Okay, so again, we, this is a question that we raised earlier. Why did Hashem harden Paro's heart again? Right, again, even after he let the Bnei Israel leave for good, what was lacking in the Ten Makos that we still needed to see the splitting of the Amsif? Also, you might say this is on the flip side, and maybe this is almost under the next question I'm going to ask almost undercuts this question. But how come the Bnei Israel quickly resort to faithless complaining right after Kriyas Yamsuf? Right, it was it was only you know it wasn't that much later after Kriyas Yamsuf that they start complaining. Oh, we don't have water. We don't have food. Oh, we, we should have never um, you know left Egypt. But how could the people who just left Egypt suggest that things were better? We're not talking about a new generation. We're talking about the same people from you know less than a month ago. So. Like, it sounds like even Chris Yamsev didn't even work. So what exactly, are, what exactly is all of this helping? Okay, so that's another question. Okay, so we have some heavy questions, and we're going to try to address them all right now. In terms of what Parshish Peshalach is as a whole, so... We would say that this is the parsha of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. This is the parsha when Am Yisrael is born. We left the womb of Egypt, and now we are we are actually becoming Hashem's people. This is at least the beginning of that. But I want to suggest also is that this parsha, which is known as the parsha of Emuna and Bitachon, something we alluded to in Real Talk Torah on Parshas Haman. So, this is going to be the answer to all of our questions, as we're going to see. We're going to learn that Hashem is, you know, not just the Almighty, one who's in control of the world, but He is the parent and constant provider of the Bnei Israel. And apparently this is something that we as Hashem's people had to learn. We mentioned that Parshas Va'ira, Parshas Bo, we were wondering what, what the entire process was for. We asked, was the whole entire Exodus really just a setup, right? Because Hashem planted us in Egypt. You know, Hashem put the suffering on us. He made things hard for us. Yes, he took us out, eventually. In this week's Parsha, we're officially out for, for good. But, once again, Hashem put us through that really long ride in the first place. And we suggested that part of the, uh, the story is, yes, it's exactly what Hashem did. Hashem put us through it because 
this is sometimes what's needed to reach the ultimate good. Sometimes we, there's a principle in life, no pain, no gain. And this happens to be true. We, we, this was the, you know, and you might start to notice a pattern. You might start to notice the pattern, right? Because we started with creation. What was the purpose of creation? Going back to many Parsha panoramas ago, Hashem wants to bestow the ultimate good upon mankind. Of course, mankind dropped the ball, and Hashem started from a, a new, from Avraham Avinu, and whoever would connect themselves to Avraham Avinu can achieve blessing. Avraham Avinu would have the nation. Um, eventually, it would be Avraham Yitzchak, then Yaakov. Yaakov's family would, would be the nation that, that gets it all. That, that we'd be the nation through which the entire world can receive blessing and achieve and earn and bask in the ultimate good. But becoming Hashem's nation wasn't just something that we could inherit. We would have to go through a process of learning about who Hashem was, learning to, to understand Hashem and devote ourselves to His mitzvot. That's why it wasn't enough that we saw the miracles, but we had to put the blood of, of Egyptian gods on our doorway, right, the inner side of the doorway, to demonstrate not just to show God a sign, but it's a rite of passage. We, we, are, we, are, we are identifying ourselves Figuring out, are we going to be Hashem's people or not? And you can't just take for granted that you're Hashem's people because, again, at any point, someone can drop the ball, just like the rest of mankind did. So that was the beginning. So we're wondering, again, why did Hashem test mankind with the tree of life, sorry, with the tree of knowledge in, in, in Gan Eden? And we said, because, you know, part of the process is that um, we need to earn it. Why did Hashem test Avram with ten trials? We had to go through the, you know, he had to go through the process. He had to learn and earn. And similarly, why did we have to go through Egyptian and Gullus? For the same reasons. We had to learn and we had to earn. And now what are we doing here in the Midbar? It's going to be the same idea. Something that we have to learn and something that we have to earn. What exactly is that referring to? So let's see. We were wondering why Hashem couldn't just, you know, why couldn't Hashem just skip the, all the hard parts? Just go right into Israel. Similar, why couldn't Hashem just skip the hard part in Gan Eden? Just put a tree of life, don't put any other trees. Skip the hard part with Avraham. You know, don't, don't, don't give him ten trials. Skip the Egyptian exile, go straight to Exodus. We don't even need the, forget the Exodus and forget the exile and, you know, forget them both. Lohein right? I don't want the suffering, I don't want the reward for it. To quote the Gemara in Brachos and Daf but apparently, this this uh, we're not taking the shortcut, and why not? Because the shortcut really undercuts the whole purpose of creation. Just like Hashem is not going to tamper with our free choice, Hashem is not going to force us into Eretz Yisrael and blockade us. You know why? Because apparently that will not have been enough. You know how we know that that will not have been enough? Because Hashem takes us on the longer route, and it takes a really long time for us to figure it out. If Hashem took us straight into Eretz Yisrael, Hashem could always just put us on the easy route and not make any problems at all, and then everyone will be happy. Apparently, that does not mesh with Hashem's plan for creation, because Hashem's plan for creation involves us going through the tough time and, and learning our way and earning our way towards, uh, to- towards the, the redemption, towards the ultimate good. So Hashem is going to put us through some kind of a process. Now, what would have happened if Hashem actually took us in the quick route, let's say? So, 
if Hashem is not going to blockade us, because Hashem doesn't plan on blockading us forever, Hashem doesn't force our hands, unless He has a purpose, unless there's a longer-term goal for it, right? So if we would have gone into to Eretz Yisrael and Hashem did not blockade us, because again, Hashem does not want to blockade us forever, so eventually He was going to have to let us go, and we would have regretted. Considering where we were, considering the 49th level of Tumah, as the Arizal and so many others put it, had we gone right into Eretz Yisrael, been afraid of war, and then turned right back, then, of course, we would have, it would have been game over. Hashem doesn't want to box us into a game over. Because we would have gone back to Egypt, would have hit the, we would have hit the 50th level of Tumah, and that would have been it. We would have completely undone everything Hashem taught us in Egypt, through the Makos, through the wonders, that would have been it. Right? So what was Hashem's plan? And right, Hashem's not going to also just take us straight into Eretz Yisrael and just do a bunch of miracles because the part of the design of creation is that Hashem does not intend to do miracles forever either. The miracles got our attention. It started to teach us who Hashem was, but that's not what Hashem's world is. Hashem's world is not a world of open miracles. There, there, you know, there, there, are, there are hidden miracles, maybe. But Hashem's world is not a world of open miracles. And because of that, Hashem can't just cut to you know, giving us a bunch of shortcuts and doing miracles all the time. Yes, in Parshas B'Shalach, Hashem is about to do miracles. But that's just the beginning. Parshas Bo, there are makos, there are miracles. That was also just the beginning. But we are in for a ride. A ride that's going to go from quickly from many miracles to lessening of miracles. Fewer miracles easing our way into the natural world. Right, easing our way into the natural world. So, so Hashem is not going to give us any shortcuts. Just like throughout history, He has never given us shortcuts. He's not going to give us a shortcut here. Here we're going to go through the process. And instead of allowing us to regret and then give up before the game even starts. Right? That's what would have been if He took us straight into Eretz Yisrael. In order for Hashem to, uh, uh, on the one hand, grant us free choice, and for us, you know, for us to not be blocked anywhere, but for us to also be able to have the opportunity to earn and learn our way towards that final ultimate good, the only way that would have to that would be able to happen is if Hashem, so to speak, pushed us on our, our bicycle without the training wheels and then let go of the bike. That's what he did with Kriyas Yamsev. That was the beginning. Hashem says, you know, we're we're, we're going to work together, and you're going to learn who I am. All right, so let's go back to the other question. Why did we need to see Kriyas Yamsuf? Well, why after Kriyas Yamsuf did it still not work anyway? Haraya, not only did we need Kriyas Yamsuf, but, we, but even Kriyas Yamsuf wouldn't have been enough. We saw all the miracles, all the wonders, and yet still we started to lose faith. We started to get scared. We were having trust issues. What, what, how do we explain this phenomenon? Hashem spent the entire Parshas Va'ira and Bo demonstrating who he was. Teaching us who he was. And apparently it all wasn't enough. So what's it going to take? It might take a lot of casualties. It might take a lot of tragedies. But some way, from B'Shal Hanan to the rest of the Torah, we're going to figure it out. And I think the answer to how we would figure it out is really the answer between um, what is uh, you know, a, a question about two particular concepts in Judaism that are often conflated. We think of them as being the same thing. We're going to tackle it right now. What, in fact, is the difference between emuna 
and bitachon. Right, we, we, we hear these words all the time. You have to have a muna in Hashem. You have to have bitachon in Hashem. They're, they seem almost synonymous. You know, often a muna is translated as faith. Maybe stability might be a better, um, a more accurate definition. Bitachon is often translated as maybe security or trust. But like, what, what really is the difference between a muna and bitachon? And why is that important here? So, I have a little bit of a treat. There is a book called Edges of Truth. It was written by Rav Simcha Leib Grossbard. Now, Rav Simcha Leib Grossbard happens to have a grandson um, from Camp Hask, who's a very special individual. And in Rav Simcha Leib Grossbard's book, he actually talks about the difference between Amuna and Bitachon, and I have an exact quote. I was able to get an exact quote from his granddaughter and grandson-in-law from the book, and I think this, this, this quote is going to be very important. And also, there's an idea that I have from a Rabbi Rav Yonason Sachs, which ties in very well to this quote, and... This also will actually come back when we come back to you know, Pesach and Purim. There's going to be a lot that's relevant here as well. But what is the difference between Amun and Bitachon? Are they the same thing? Should we conflate the two? Or would that be missing something? So here's what Rav Simcha Leib Grossbard says. He says, Amuna is an intellectual certainty based on logic, common sense, or tradition. Bitachon is the emotional state of confidence engendered by that intellectual conviction. Once again, emuna is intellectual certainty based on logic, common sense, or tradition. It's the intellect, again, that's, that's the part that we know in our minds based on either of those things that, 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 that Hashem is in, you know, in charge of the world or whatever. Bitachon is the emotional state of confidence engendered by that intellectual conviction, meaning bitachon is... Emuna applied, doing something with it, making it real. And I think there's a you know there's a great story to to put with this difference between Emuna and Bitachon, and it'll it'll help demonstrate the point very well. I've heard different variations of the same story. I'm going to tell it my way. Um, but there was um, an individual by the, by the name of Blondin. His last name was Blondin, the great Blondin. And he was the first person in history to tightrope across the, the Niagara Falls. And this story might be apocryphal, but that's okay, because it's going to serve a purpose here. The great Blondin was you know, performing his incredible you know, his, his, his one trick, which is that he can go across the Niagara Falls. So he's going he's gonna to tie rope across Niagara Falls, and he has a whole crowd, you know, standing around and watching. And he says, who wants to see the great Blondin tie rope across Niagara Falls? And everyone cheers. They, you know, they really want to see it. He says, I could only do it on one condition. I could only do it if you believe in the great Blondin. Who believes in the great Blondin? And everyone cheers, we believe in the great Blondin. And so he says, okay, I'm going. And lo and behold, sure enough, he tie ropes across Niagara Falls. Okay, he says, 
But do you think the great Blondin can do it blindfolded? Who believes in the great Blondin? If you believe in the great Blondin, then I'll do it blindfolded. Everyone cheers. We believe in the great Blondin. And so he says, okay, good. He puts on the blindfold. And sure enough, he tie ropes across Niagara Falls, blindfolded. And the crowd goes wild. He says, and now for my next trick, I'm the great Blondin is going to take a human in a wheelbarrow and wheelbarrow, wheelbarrow right across the tightrope, right across Niagara Falls. Do you believe in the great Blondin? We believe in the great Blondin. He says, excellent. Who's coming with me? Silence. Amuna is we, we believe in the great Blondin. Bitachon is who's coming with me. It's interesting that at Kriyas Yamsuf, the Chumash says, Vaya'aminu ba'ashem of Moshe Avdo. All of Kla Yisrael manifested emuna. We believe, we believe, we believe, we believe. That's, you know, that, that, that was in a sense what they were learning. Emuna is an understanding that, yes, Hashem exists. Hashem has showed himself, we know he's out there. Bitachon is that he's with us and he's carrying us through. Right? And this is what my Rebbe Yonason Sachs explains is the special nature of our Kiddush based on the Ramban. The Ramban to Devarim, Hey Tesvav, talks about Kiddush. And our Kiddush, our Kiddush is a memorial of two different things. We say Zecher Lema'asei and we say Zecher Litzias Mitzrayim. Ma'asei Voracious, Hashem created the world, Yitzias Mitzrayim, Hashem took us out of Egypt. So what's the significance of these two things? These two different things. Right, and similarly, you know, in the, in the Aserah Sedebros, next week's parsha, Anochi Hashem al-Kacha Sheretzei He says, I'm, I'm, I'm God who took you out of Egypt. What about God who was Osei Shemayim Baretz? Why doesn't he say, I was God who created the heavens and earth? Why does he specify Yitzhak Mitzrayim? So the idea is that Maiseh Bereshis, that's God exists. Yitzhak Mitzrayim is that God is involved in our lives. He intervenes. These are the two things. Every Shabbos on Kiddush, we say Hashem exists, Emuna, and Hashem is involved in my life, Bitachon. And this is what Rav Sachs explains is the difference between Hashem, as we say in the first of the Animamans, Hu Borei Umanhig. What's Borei Umanhig? Borei, he's the creator of the world. Manhig, he guides and drives the world. He didn't just create the world and walk away. Emuna, we have Emuna in a bore. We have Bitachon in a manhig. Now again, this doesn't mean that Bitachon doesn't mean Hashem's going to give you everything that you want. It doesn't mean that Hashem's going to give you the exact result that you want. But Bitachon means that the same God who created the world, the same God who did all the miracles in Egypt, the same God who did all of these things, is also going to be the same God that... You know, later, you know, when all the miracles are not there, he's still in charge. He's still guiding history. He's still guiding your future destiny. And this is also the difference between Pesach on the one hand, Purim on the other. Right, Pesach, the Shvi'i Shal Pesach, with the beginning of the Torah for this week's Parsha. Kriyas Yamsuf, the open miracles. You know how B'Shalach ends. We mentioned this in Muslim minutes. It ends with a natural war. A natural war between us and Amalek. And... For the better part of the war, we win. And, we you know, Amalek is fended off. On the one hand, it was a natural war, but on the other hand, we were looking up to Hashem, looking up at uh, and seeing, you know, Moshe's hands up in the air, 
which is just a sign that we should have bitachon in Hashem. Right? It's interesting that Moshe's hands, the Chumash says his hands are emuna. They're stable. They're, they're, they're up there. It takes, you know, in Kriyas Yamsuf, you know, Vayaminu Hashem Moshe Avda, we have emuna. Bitachon's going to come a little bit later, right? When, when we're, it's all natural, but we don't see all the miracles that are happening. That's the story of Pesach versus the story of Purim. Right? Pesach is open miracles. Purim is all natural. And guess what? Bitachon means that we know that Hashem is there as well. And so we were wondering, right, this, this longer route that Hashem took us on. There is no easy way in. Either we go straight into Eretz Yisrael, and that's going to be a quick game over. You know why? Because we will not have learned or earned anything. We will not have learned how to trust in Hashem. We would not have the kalim, we would not have the tools to succeed in any wars without Hashem openly intervening, at least if he takes us through the Midbar. Yes, he's going to openly intervene. He's going to give us mun. He's going to take water out of a rock. He's going to, you know, he's going to do a lot of different cool tricks. Those cool tricks will eventually go away. But in the meantime, during that time, we're going to learn to not just know Hashem as creator, but to trust him as the guide of the world, as our parent and our provider, constant parent and provider. The difference between Amuna and Bitachon. And looking at the larger scale, once again, there's this pattern. Testing mankind with the Etadas, testing Avram with the Ten Trials, testing us with the Golas of Mitzrayim, and now a detour through the desert, testing us with the Midbar. Why not just skip to the ultimate good? Because that doesn't, that, again, that, that, that doesn't work with the plan of creation, which involves us earning our way, and again, learning our way around the world, and learning to trust in Hashem. But that's the route that we are on. And yes, there will be casualties, because in life, you know, life doesn't just guarantee that you're going to succeed, unfortunately. You have to try your best. You have to work. Just like mankind, you know, a majority of mankind, you know, fell off the earth when it came to the Dor HaMabal, the Dor HaFlaga. No one said that all of mankind is going to succeed. And in a certain respect, you know, um, Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai agreed at the end of the day that it might be better that we weren't created. But now we have the opportunity. Now that we're here, they both agree that we have to try our best. And it could be that a whole generation is going to have to miss out, at least, you know, um, uh, at least in Olam Hazeh. But we have to push through. We're, Bezra Hashem, going to be among the people that are going to see the ultimate Ula. But part of that means going along, for Hashem, you know, with, going along with Hashem for the ride. Daring to not just have Amuna, but to have Bitachon in Hashem, to know that Hashem is with us. To not just believe in the great Blondin, but to be willing to go in the wheelbarrow with him. And with that, um, Bezras Shem, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll experience all of that, uh, that, that, that incredible redemption. But again, going with Hashem, going for the ride. That takes us through Parshas Beshalach. And Bezras Shem next week will pick up with Parshas Yisro and see, um, you know, the, the real climax of, of perhaps history at large. And it'll be, you know, the, the, the actualization of us becoming Hashem's people. Thanks for joining us here at the database and have an absolutely wonderful Shabbos.